Welcome to Club and Country here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. I am Tim Sullivan, the owner-operator of ClubCountryUSA.com, which you may recognize as the uh, same name as this podcast, Club and Country. I am uh, just a, a replacement-level guy here, Tim. I'm filling in again. <laughs> You're stuck with me again. I do apologize. Wes, of course, is, is handling some stuff. He will be back next week. This time, I promise that's real. He'll be back next week. Uh, and, of course, uh, get you guys ready to go for, for Nashville SC's regular season, which is right around the corner. Uh, but you are stuck with me again. Uh, I, I, you know, Wes did not make the trip, much like Timothy Weah. It's you're stuck with me. So there you go. <laughs> I, I, man, I can't express in words how much I would have loved to have both of those guys instead of, <laughs> instead of nobody <laughs> and you. <laughs> Tim, always a pleasure working with you, uh, as, as usual. No, rate, review, subscribe, of course, share the show. Special thanks to Moon Taxi for providing us all of our amazing music. We have an awesome show lined up, though, of course. You had a great conversation, uh, Tim, with Tom Bogert of MLS.com, or I guess MLSsoccer.com, works for the MLS, um, covers all kinds of transfer stuff. And you guys, you have a really deep conversation about sort of what Mike Jacobs' strategy is around some of these uh, international slots that he's selling for, for GAM, which is all about how to manipulate the salary cap. Really great insight from Tom on that. Talked about some of the new pieces, uh, the, you know, the, the Sean Davis acquisition, uh, namely um, some of the trends in roster management that Mike Jacobs appears to be sort of on the, the cutting edge of, at mm -hmm. least for now. And of course, the trade with Alistair Johnston as well. What did he make of all of that? So a lot of, and, and an interesting concept from Tom on the right back situation. Uh, for Nashville SC as well. So a really good interview. You guys are going to hear that coming up in a little bit. Uh, we'll talk some preseason stuff as well as the actual matches are on the docket here coming up in just a few minutes, in just a, a little bit later on in the show. But we get started, of course, with World Cup qualifying. U.S. one nothing. Anthony Robinson with a, a beautiful putback uh, to give them a one nothing win over El Salvador. Could not really finish across the board in in the final third there, they created a lot of chances against El Salvador, not the case against Canada, could not even create chances, even though they dominated most play. They fall to nothing up in Hamilton. They will play Honduras on Wednesday. Honduras, uh, not good, Tim, uh, mm -hmm. not not good. So we'll, we'll get to some of that. I, my, I wanted to ask you just a, a, a general question to start this conversation, though. And I've, I've been asked this question now by a bunch of my friends, and I thought you would be the perfect guy to answer this. And that is, are, are we good? <laughs> that's that's the question i'm getting from people they're going hey are like are we pretty good are we good and my my stock answer is we're, we're as talented as we've ever been a lot of young guys that are learning how to win they've finished some matches and qualifying in the final you know 30 minutes of play where they've come from behind and made some really nice plays they're, they're athletically they're as gifted as i've ever seen but they're still very young i think they're pretty good but they can't score in the first half and they're having trouble finishing does what what is your mind here or where does your mind go when I say, hey, like, so are we good or not? I would have to say yes, but maybe not as good as everyone would have hoped to be at this point. When you look at where some of these guys are playing, um, you have Timothy Weah, who's at Lille in France, um, who won the French League last year. They won League on. You have Christian Pulisic at Chelsea, which is like a club that you probably would have never guessed that an American would be playing at. You have Weston McKinney at Juventus, which um, Italian soccer is down uh, comparison to what it's been historically, but that's one of the big, big, big clubs in this world. And all of these guys are the best generation of talent that America has ever seen, but the results are mostly 
they're in line with what we've historically seen. They're not worse than what we've historically seen, but you would hope with more talent than ever that it would be better than we've ever seen before. Um, there are reasons for that. Some of it is just that, that despite being a very talented team, it's still a very young team, as you mentioned. And then, of course, the fact that, as, as we'll talk about in a sec here, that CONCACAF appears to have a, a, a new power potentially in Canada that has just never been there before. Yes, there have historically been very good Costa Rica and Jamaica teams. There have historically been kind of other teams from Central America coming up every now and then, maybe even one or two from the Caribbean every now and then. But I don't think you've ever seen somebody who has looked like they're going to be able to say, we're going to be a consistent power along with the United States and Mexico. Like Canada looks poised to be right now. And obviously when you, when you have the result that we saw in Hamilton on Sunday afternoon, uh, they look like they're very serious about capturing that role in this confederation. And um, when you're the Americans, you have to say, okay, it's time for our talent to start doing what we've seen Canada's talent step up and do. Canada's talent is a little bit older, but also their best player isn't playing right now. Alfonso Davies, instead of being on the field on Sunday or last Thursday, was sitting in his house uh, commenting on the game on Twitch and, and doing a live stream for his fans um, and still like celebrating every goal like he was there. And they didn't seem to miss a beat even without him. So are the United States men's national team, are they in fact scared of Canada as, as the goalkeeper uh, would have you believe? God, it pains me to say, but maybe it seems like that might be the case. Honestly, I listen, I, I kind of joke. I ask that tongue in cheek. I, I do think, and, and you can read the quote if you've got it. I don't, I don't have it in front of me. Um, the, the Canadian keeper had some choice words about sort of the, they went down to Nashville and they played in front of 60,000 people. And, you know, we used to be scared and now they're playing scared. And again, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but um, listen, they, the U S took one point in two matches against yeah, Canada. Here, so here's, here's the, uh, the full quote from Milan Borjan he said, whenever we went to the U S they have 60,000 people screaming at us, but now when they come to us or we go there, they're scared. They're scared. The last four or five matches, they've been scared against us. So um, I think that's that potentially translated from French or maybe spoken in English, <laughs> which is not his first language. So it might seem a little harsh, but it might also be softened. We don't really know. So it's, it's definitely a serious quote about where he thinks that the Americans kind of see the rivalry right now. Well, I, I think it's clear in the two matches in this qualifier, the one here in Nashville and, and on Sunday that, you know, listen, I, I realize that the U.S. had time of possession control on Sunday, but they... Canada, <laughs> their two strikers are better right now. <laughs> like they're, mm -hmm. they're playing at a higher level. They, I, it clearly the one, one draw was not a fluke in Nissan stadium. Yeah. Um, th this is one of the most improved teams in the entire world. And we'll get to sort of what that means for CONCACAF and for the U S national team moving forward. But I scared, isn't the right word that I would use, but I would say, you know, maybe taken off guard perhaps is the right term or, it, it, they're surprised to be on even footing with Canada. Those would be maybe more softer ways maybe, of saying it. Maybe that, or maybe that there's just a level of respect that, that almost manifests itself like fear when they actually play each other. Cause they're saying, this is a team that we haven't respected historically and now we have to. And it kind of, when it shows up on the field, it doesn't kind of come across that way because um, they are kind of adjusting to a new reality there and, and realizing that Canada is a team that, that it should be taken seriously. So against Canada, 2-0 loss, they don't really generate many chances. I mean, Winston, Weston McKinney had the, the beautiful header mm -hmm. off the Pulisic cross that was a, just a, a gorgeous save by, uh, by the keeper. And then you had Areola with the bicycle kick, both of which could have easily tied the game up at the time. Canada adds the, the you know, sort of the, the bonus time um, mm -hmm. goal there. El, El Salvador 
you know, they do finish with the one nothing win. They had in a different way. They had far more chances in the box, mm-hmm. just could not for whatever reason, could not connect on that. They also have not scored at any point really during this World Cup qualifying thing in in the first half. They've scored two goals <laughs> in yeah. the entire time in the first <laughs> yeah. half. Christian Pulisic, of course, had the injury. He's been now open about his struggles at Chelsea, trying to find a position over there. He looked largely, I don't know, I don't want to say irrelevant in the last two matches. He only played whatever 60-something minutes against El Salvador, but he largely was, I didn't notice him at all. He didn't look like the same aggressive, sort of attacking, creative player that I'm used to seeing. Um, You mentioned Wea not being there. Walker Zimmerman, by the way, a hamstring injury, didn't play against Canada. Tyler Adams went out with a hamstring as well. Brendan Aronson didn't look like the same player that he was back in, in, in November and December. What do you make of the offense and their struggles? It starts with Christian Pulisic, as you mentioned. He just doesn't look like the same sort of dangerous player that we've seen historically for the United States, including the previous World Cup qualifying. Um, unfortunately, that, that, that the Americans didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup. But whether it's injuries, whether it's just a lack of confidence from not having the best club situation at Chelsea, he's only kind of a part-time player there. Whether it's adjusting to a reality where he's the most important player on the team, when you look at what he had around him in 2018, you're still playing with Clint Dempsey and a bunch of guys who are you know, up to 15 years older than him basically at that time. He could kind of be that little spark plug rather than having to say, I'm the engine that drives this team. I think that's an adjustment that he's going to have to continue making kind of realizing where to pick his spots. And there's a, just a simple element of being able to trust the players around him. We know that he trusts Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams. He's been playing with those guys forever. Um, they've been very high level performers for the U.S. men's national team in similar ways that he has. But some of the other guys around him, whether that's Serginho Des, who obviously plays at one of the biggest clubs in the world in Barcelona, but it's not a guy who always has his best performances with the United States and is not a guy that you can necessarily say when I show up, and I'm playing next to him, I know exactly what I'm going to get. Um, you, you can get really good things from him in any given game, but you can also get weird kind of slip-ups. And I think the, some of the lack of confidence in his teammates is, is what is causing Christian Pulisic to be uh, trying to take too much onto his shoulders, I guess you could say. And, and that's obviously, if it goes well, that makes him look awesome. But when it doesn't go well, um, he's forcing things. On uh, Former Nashville SC defender Alistair Johnson dispossessed him a couple times on Sunday afternoon. And it just looked rough because... Um, you know, as much as, as people here love Alistair, that's not a guy that is playing in the Premier League for Chelsea, <laughs> unlike Christian Pulisic. So it's something that Pulisic's just going to have to kind of get his head right and and get his role right with this team. And, and some of that comes down to the coaching and, and having Greg Berhalter say, OK, we need to figure out a way to get the most out of our best player. Uh, quickly, where sh- what is Christian Pulisic's best position? Oh, man. So well, that's Left part wing? of the problem, right? That's part of the problem. I think he's at his best when he's playing on the wing, isolated in space. But with this U.S. men's national team, the width is more often provided by the fullbacks coming from behind. And so he's kind of pushed into the center a little bit. And he actually likes to play in the center, but I don't think it plays to his strengths as much. It puts him in more traffic. He can't dribble by one guy and kind of make the sort of magic that we've seen him do on the dribble because there's a help defender there all too often. Um, It might just be as simple as, play him where he's been playing, but have a, an attack that's a little more counter oriented because then he'll be in more space. There'll be fewer defenders as, as the opponent has to recover. You know, last week on the show, we talked about, I had asked you and you sort of, we were talking about Hani Mukhtar and his Mm -hmm. performance in year one versus year two. And we were sort of talking about the Nashville SC evolution offensively from year one to year two. And you said, and again, I'm going to paraphrase you here, but you basically said, 
Well, it wasn't as much a scheme or a strategy or a change by Coach Smith or a new acquisition. Certainly, Sapong was excellent. But that Mukhtar just played at a different level, right? He just yeah. elevated his game, sort of refound his, his form, and was just playing off the charts good, which he was. Does it feel like that's the thing that, that the U.S. men's national team needs to have from Pulisic for them to be what they can be? Is that fair? Is that too much pressure on him? Does that comparison make sense to you? That like, Yeah, yeah, the comparison definitely makes sense. Um, they would love to have that, certainly. <laughs> I don't think it necessarily has to be him. Uh, it, it could be Weston McKinney. It could be um, a guy like Brendan Aronson, who's obviously not done it in the past in the way that Christian Pulisic has, but has the skill set to maybe do something like that. It could be Ricardo Pepe, the, the 18-year-old stepping up, and um, I don't think he's kind of even come off the bench in the past two games. Um, his former club teammate, Jesus Ferreira, started at striker against El Salvador, and then Jossie Zardes, who I really like. I know he came in for a, a whipping in the uh, post-game uh, breakdowns by people, but I, th I thought he had an okay game on Sunday. It just wasn't happening around him. But I think Ricardo Pepe brings a different element to this team um, when he's on and when he's ready to play. Obviously, he hasn't been considered ready to play the last two games, which is very unfortunate. Hopefully, he's ready for Wednesday, especially because, as you mentioned at the very top here, Honduras, not very good. It can be an opportunity for him to get a little bit of confidence, but there needs to be somebody stepping up to another level. It can be one individual who can really, you know, snap your fingers and spark a change in this team. And Christian Pulisic is the only guy that we've seen do it on any sort of consistent level. It's been a long time though. So it could be anybody else stepping up and, and helping the team find that level. Timothy Weah, who we've already mentioned. Um, sorry, I, I, I was going to be done, but I want to say Timothy Weah, who, who could not travel to Canada because um, France and Canada had a disagreement over what fully vaccinated means. So he was unable to enter uh, the, the Commonwealth of Canada. If he'd been there, it could have been a different story. This is a guy who has that sort of that, you know, just that something that it factor that Pulisic also has. We haven't seen it as much with the United States men's national team for way up, but he has that in his bag and we can see him do that on any given day and he can change the game. Uh, the American inside of me calls that speed. Uh, the Europeans would call that pace, I believe. Uh, but that's, well, it's what, not, it, that's it's, what he brings to the table. For, 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 yes, I mean, he, he does have that, but there's, there's just this element of playmaking that, you know, we, when you see Christian Pulisic play, yes, he's a very fast player, but he's going to beat you on the dribble. Uh, Way is, yes, a very fast player, but he has this, this kind of this, it's hard to describe it. Je ne sais quoi, I guess is what the French would say. Ah, just, he okay. just has it and he can, he can strike from distance. He can make something happen. And obviously we've seen that making something happen is probably what this team needs. Yeah. He brings a ton of energy is another way to say it as, mm -hmm. as well. Uh, there's no question about that. So I want to talk about Canada uh, and sort of a larger conversation about CONCACAF and our hemisphere and our continent and all that stuff. But just real quickly here, Honduras on Wednesday, of course, will be the third of, of this sort of chunk here. They will not get back into qualifying until late March. Of course, Mexico, Panama, and Costa Rica, Two of those are going to be on the road. You'll go on the road against Mexico on the 24th, on the road against Costa Rica on the 30th, sandwiched around a home match against Panama on the 27th. So um, before we get into sort of what you think of, you know, where this team needs to be and what they need to accomplish in that final trio of games, uh, I will say this about Honduras. Negative um, 14 goal differential heading into this match. They are winless mm -hmm. in 10 matches in World Cup qualifying. They have scored a grand total of five goals in 10 games. Um, there's really no excuse in a home match in St. Paul 
for the U.S. team not to get three points. And and officially eliminated from the World Cup as of Sunday afternoon as well. They cannot finish as high as fourth anymore. So this is a team that not only um, started off being very bad, but has every reason to mail it in. Uh, that kind of bit us against Trinidad back in, in 2017. But a uh, slightly different story when you have a little bit more of a cushion and a little bit more uh, runway to make up for it if something bad happens. But I do think you can expect kind of a flat performance from a Honduras team that isn't starting from a high level in the first place too. So where is this team heading into those final three matches? Panama made it interesting with a three, two win uh, sort of closing the gap there as, mm-hmm. as the U S and Mexico both drew on Sunday, they, they have a tough one with Mexico, I believe coming up this week. Um, but wh- where's your head at with this team in terms of ultimately getting into the world cup with just, you know, again, assuming a win on Wednesday against Honduras and picking up three points that would give them 21 where where does this team need to be? What do they need to accomplish in those final three matches to sort of secure their spot? Yeah, four points back of Canada. First place in the Ocho probably isn't going to happen at this stage, but you don't really need to finish. There's no difference between first and third and second. You know, all three, all three of those automatic qualifying spots are automatic qualifying spots, nothing more or less, basically. So what you really need to see, other than a win against Honduras, is just beat Panama on March 27th or draw at Costa Rica uh, on March 30th, or both of those, excuse me, do both of those and you're guaranteed to get in. There is no way that you can finish any lower than third. Um, you don't even necessarily need the Panama win and the Costa Rica draw. If those cl- uh, countries drop points somewhere along the way, um, obviously we'll see what happens this week. Um, Panama plays Mexico on Wednesday. That's not going to be an easy match for them. Um, Costa Rica has to get a clean sweep in its three non-US games to even be alive for that third place spot come that final day of the Ocho. So there's a lot going on here that is out of the United States control, but pretty much all of it, aside from, you know, what, what we see Panama do can only really help the United States. It's, it's either Costa Rica keeps pace or they're basically eliminated by the time the United States goes down to San Jose. So um, as long as you take care of business on, against Honduras, uh, things are still looking pretty rosy. Um, we'll get to Tom Bogart here in just a second. He's going to give you guys a PhD on sort of roster management and acquisition. And basically just, uh, um, you guys are just like just shaking pom-poms for Mike Jacobs for about 20 minutes. Uh, basically (laughs) basically what you guys did there. Um, no, it's fat. It's, it's an awesome listen. You guys are going to really enjoy it. We'll do some preseason stuff for Nashville SC following the interview. So stick around until, until after that. But before we get to that last part here of the world cup qualifying for me, as I am watching Canada, what, 36 years, they haven't been in the World Cup. This is a team that, to your point, you've already mentioned this, that like there's just a new sort of big, powerful potential program in this group of teams. And he, I would argue that it is critically important for U.S. soccer, for another, another big, massive country in our North and Central American continents, in our hemisphere, to be good at this game because that will force you to elevate your game when you're playing higher quality competition more routinely. And I think having Mexico being sort of the, you know, the torchbearer for, for soccer in Central and, and North America for so long, U.S. sort of always right there, kind of right behind them, you know, having another team that is on par with those two to create a big three versus a big two, I, I don't know. To me, that is a really good development, even if we hate the outcome on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know every time you, that you uh, take Wes's chair over there, we start talking about college football, but it reminds me of the SEC, like in the mid 2000s, when more teams 
came up and, and raised the middle class of the SEC, all of a sudden Florida and then ultimately Alabama basically in perpetuity <laughs> became these just unstoppable behemoths. And it couldn't have happened if you didn't see some of those kind of middle of the conference uh, teams pick up the pace and, and kind of force those guys to up their game a little bit. And I think if you have a Canada that, that can make that kind of a big three instead of a big two, you do have the opportunity to not only kind of tune yourself up a little bit, but when it comes to, to things like a world cup qualifying, um, it's going to be a different story in 2026 because the U S Mexico and Canada are all hosting it. But otherwise the coefficients for these national teams determine how many teams from your confederation get into the world cup. So that's a situation where if Canada is better and they go out and beat teams from Europe or beat teams from Asia, Africa, Oceania, then you have the opportunity to say, okay, now instead of 3.5 spots, which is what CONCACAF is going to get in this year's World Cup, maybe in the future it would be four spots. And of course the World Cup is going to get bigger down the road, but kind of proportionally you have the opportunity to say, okay, we, there's a little bit more margin for error if Canada is good too, even though we're hoping that it keeps us at the top. It does mean if we're not right at the top of CONCACAF, there's a little bit more that we can accomplish despite being a little bit lower in the confederation. Uh, also, um, I agree with everything you're saying. Um, so we're just going to, you know, embrace debate here on the show or, or consensus as Wes likes to say, <laughs> uh, I, I would say also, this is the one and only time I will root for Alistair Johnson. Um, <laughs> I, I found myself like watching him and just be, and just being like bummed, you know, um, now again, Tom is going to explain in a little while why it was a, probably a really smart move that, that Nashville SC did, did what they did with him. But I, I was a little bummed watching him. And then he like, you know, like you said, he, he made a couple of nice plays and you're like, oh, okay, that's enough. Like he, <laughs> they got their one win. I'm fine. I'm happy for him. I will say that if the U S gets eliminated and Canada is still playing, I have a reason to root for Canada for multiple reasons now. And he's probably one of them. It, there's absolutely never going to be any ill will from anyone in Nashville towards Alistair Johnson. And if you have a reason to cheer for Canada, he would definitely be it. stupid talented <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just so smooth with the ball never makes a bet no wasted movement never makes a bad move like he's just uh, like beyond his years man um and it's gonna be tough watching him it's gonna be tough watching him play in europe here in a few years um although we'll take that 10 percent fee i believe um that we yeah. that, that nashville sc gets for that right okay so well when we come back you will hear tim's conversation that anything anything else you want to add for for world cup qualifier i think we basically hit everything yeah that's it i think we i think we covered every single thing we could possibly come up with <laughs> all right we've got some preseason conversation about nashville let's see what do, what goals do we want to see this team accomplish sort of continuing our conversation from last week uh but uh coming up next you're going to hear tim's conversation with tom bogert of major league soccer we are very pleased to welcome into the show tom bogert who is developing a reputation as tommy scoops the transfer guru over at MLSsoccer.com. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Sam. That was a kind intro. Appreciate it. All downhill from here. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully I'll, uh, I'll live up to the <laughs> guests that we have here. But um, so obviously covering transfers for MLSsoccer.com, you kind of have a, a broad view of, of what goes on around the league, in, including in Nashville. So we're just going to catch up with you about some of the stuff that Mike Jacobs has been up to this offseason. So let's start with the one that um, it's kind of a, a kind of a recurring piece here, which is selling their international slots. And they've gotten 250,000 a piece for um, a couple for DC United, Dallas. Uh, there's been a report that NYCFC that has never actually been officially confirmed yet. Um, you know, there's there's 
they're repeatedly doing this uh, sale of an international spot for $250,000. At the time of the first one, it was a new record. What do you kind of see in terms of the value of these international slots? Is it just the market adjusting to that? Did Mike Jacobs kind of pull one over the first one that he sold this offseason? How do you see that as a value for those slots? Nashville set the market, which mm-hmm. is a pretty cool thing to be able to say for, for the club. Like the price of international slots have gone up. And I think that this it's it's super impressive and it's part it's it's a couple nuances probably MLS nerd kind of things but one the rate at which Nashville have been able to turn around green cards for players who aren't from the league uh mm-hmm. two is that this doesn't net like they have a appreciation for the domestic player of course but this doesn't necessarily mean that they're going for like an all American or all domestic team like they have acquired guys who had MLS experience but are international players like Anibal Godoy who mm-hmm. already had a green card um, and then you just kind of look down the list of, of like I said, that, that Liao and, and Mukhtar, their green cards kind of came quick. So it's the just the binary or the lazy idea of that this means that they're just trying to have, you know, a, an American team it isn't correct. And then as a third, like these were the first signs that the, the GAM inflation or the GAM marketplace is robust. Um, uh, Paul Tenorio put together a really good thread on this to kind of illuminate it that like there's just more GAM in the market. Part of that is from the league giving that to clubs or i believe that 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 the number went up part of it is all these expansion teams that came in with morgam and part of it is all of these transfers abroad in which the new rules that i believe it used to be just homegrown players you could convert Mm -hmm. a decent amount of it to gam but now i'm pretty sure with any transfer you can convert a million and change into gam and as you're seeing this winter last summer last winter that you know the league has sold more and more players abroad so it, it's just a long-winded way of saying that there's a lot more GAM in the market and Nashville were kind of quick to recognize mm-hmm. and set a new market for international slots because they were kind of, it was the half-day trade window when they did that. So theoretically, they were the first international right. trade to happen. It would look really silly if they agreed to like last year's rate of like 175000 or 150000 and then a month later, all of these GAM deals like Paul Ariel going for $2 million, you'd be like, oh, wow, like they kind of got short there. So I think that they had good foresight to set the market and realize that these international slots are valuable and this is a good price. It's not a cheap one for national <laughs> to let go. So it's worthwhile for them, but it's not like a crazy holding the bag and saying you can have an international slot for 500,000 gam or something ridiculously unrealistic. Yeah. Now, every time we talk to Mike Jacobs, he says gam is the most important roster building mechanism. What is it that uh, obviously just, the international slots are kind of excess to what Nashville needs for the reasons that you said, but what is it about GAM that makes it so much more valuable than, um, you know, draft picks, players, whatever it, it may be? Yeah, it's, it's just super versatile. You can use it to either acquire players, which Nashville has done in the past with, with Godoy and McCarthy and, and uh, Walker Zimmerman. You can use it, you know, you know, the most value is using it on the salary cap. So the salary cap's what, 4.8 million or whatever? If you have two million in GAM, your salary cap is six point eight million. The, the way that you can maneuver contracts and buy down players, I forget. I, I checked this recently. I think Nashville had last year maybe five or six players that made above the max uh, mm-hmm. budget threshold, and, uh, and but weren't classified as DPs. Right. So it's super useful in that. And and people talk about it in, in the context of Concacaf Champions League of the top end of MLS rosters can compete with the top end of the best league MX teams, but it's like roster spots four through 12 is where kind of the gap is is most uh, apparent with GAM. You're able to pay and have more players that are theoretically above, 
you know, salary budget and that shouldn't be able to be fit into the cap. Like what Seattle have done, like the captain gymnastics, Portland are another team. That's a really good example of this. They have a you know, set number of, okay, to buy down these contracts this year, we need to come up with X amount of gam this off season. And so they're able to, you know, it, it's, it's a way to expand the, the salary cap, you know, for people who don't really want to get too much into the weeds in this. I think that's <laughs> probably what, how I could have just answered instead of rambling for 90 <laughs> seconds, but yeah, I think it's most valuable to expand your salary cap. Well, uh, not the most valuable way to use it, I guess, though, is to is to acquire players. Um, they've they've acquired a couple players this offseason. I believe so far only one of them um, they spent gam on, and that was Teal Bunbury from a New England mm. Revolution. And that was a no, it was a nominal thing. And yeah, I, I, yeah. I think seventy five and seventy five conditional. Yeah. So not a ton, not a ton there. Um, what what sort of business have you seen? I guess from the other end, since since I think Nashville SC fans are pretty familiar with how Mike operates. What have you seen from the other end? How how Bruce operates, and and whether you know. He, I hate the the terminology of who won the deal, but is this a good deal for Nashville? Yeah, I mean, I didn't identify center forward as a place of need for this club. You have mm-hmm. CJ Sapong, Ake right. Loba, who was bought for just under $7 million, and Daniel Rios, who I still contend that if if I was a GM of another team, I particularly after the Teal Bunbury signing, I, I would have called Mike Jacobs and, and asked, what's your price for Daniel Rios? Because I think that he's... He's somebody, you know, people look for the next Brian White and maybe an undervalued kind of striker, somebody who just need needs an opportunity to have regular playing time to play. So I uh, I did not identify center forward as a need. I understand the move and it makes sense. It's, it's again, it's another MLS experienced player. It's somebody who feels like a really good fit for Gary Smith. It's somebody who gives you um, insurance. You know, if, if Ake Loba doesn't work out, if CJ Zapong goes cold, if Daniel Rios is hurt, see, uh, all these options having more options is better. Um, I'm not sure what to expect by way of, you know, a minutes threshold for him this year. Um, And, you know, if we were talking at this time last year, this is a lot of the things I might've said about CJ Sapong as well. So um, I think just more options isn't a bad idea, but, um, and and being able to get him for, you know, what do you 75 upfront plus 75 in in, um, incentives. And then this is the kind of deal where see if he's third or fourth on the, on the preseason depth chart, I don't know what his budget hit is. I'm sure it's not, you know, the, the league minimum or whatever, but this is kind of an area of a good example of where that extra allocation money goes to. You can overpay or whatever you want to call it. You can allocate more budget resources to Teal Bunbury when you can buy down his contract hit right. to you know, X amount of dollars. Right. If you spend 75 in GAM on him and you only pay him 150, you pretend like you pay him 225 and you figure yeah, it yeah. out from there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just being able to buy down his, his cap number on the budget yeah, itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, uh, if center forward wasn't a, wasn't an off season need, they, they managed to pick up another one um, for, I think even fewer resources in terms of a first round pick being uh, essentially valueless to a lot of teams, unfortunately, but Ethan Zubak, um, what, what have you seen from him? uh, And then what, obviously given the fact that they gave up very little for him, probably good business either way. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's a completely low risk or no risk fire. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure he's on the supplementary roster technically. Mm -hmm. So like, worst case scenario he doesn't play a minute and like you just forget about it and like that's sounds like super dismissive to, to ethan zubak in himself like he played some decent minutes for the galaxy you know he wasn't he wasn't really going to fit in there if they have if they're playing with one center forward and they have chicharito and they have dayan jovalich like there's no real reason for him to look at that and think that he's going to play a lot um so again like it, it's something these are the kind of moves that i like in in the sense that you don't have to worry about it. It's, it's, it's not something that th- there's no opportunity cost. There's nothing, there's no real downside to this. Like he's somebody who they think that they got as, you know, a buy low, uh, you know, option. Um, he's somebody who, 
think he's like 24 now there. So there should be a little bit more to come in terms of development. He's, Mm -hmm. he's athletic. He's somebody who works hard. Like his defensive metrics were were really good. Um, Something that is a star contrast to, to, um, some other LA galaxy forwards in the past. <laughs> um, so he's somebody who stylistically should fit with Gary Smith. He's somebody who could play as kind of the CJ Sapong, you know, further forward target man, or he could fill in for the Hani Mukhtar second striker kind of role. Um, so he's somebody who's fluid. He, he can do both. He can offer something different if the game calls for it. But again, I feel Bunbury is a similar way. You know, I think that they have a lot of options at forward. Uh, so playing time wouldn't necessarily be easy to come by for him. But again, it's, it's just, it's a low risk fire. And, mm-hmm. and it's something that these are smart moves. Um, and no disrespect to Josh Bauer, but uh, we will gloss over <laughs> the re-entry pick here and, and get to the big <laughs> one um, from your neck of the woods as a free agent. They grabbed Sean Davis, um, spent his whole career with New York Red Bulls before that. W- what sort of, uh, I guess, business is this? Obviously get, getting a guy in free agency is effectively free. Um, mm-hmm. Sean told us that he, he was flown to Nashville and, and kind of wined and dined. So um, for John Ingram, it was not free, but for, for, the budget, <laughs> for Mike Jacobs, it was free. For John Ingram, it was not free in terms of acquisition costs. What do you see in that move and, and how perfect a fit? Is it that, or do you agree, I guess, with Mike in that it is a perfect fit? Yeah. Uh, first of all, he's literally from my neck of the woods in the sense that he we grew up 15 minutes apart from each other uh, mm-hmm. in central New Jersey. Uh, Every, so everything really in New Jersey is close. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is actually like really close. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, like he's he's a perfect fit. I remember like looking at the free agent list and like talking to people around the league, like like Nashville have to be in for Sean Davis, right? Like mm-hmm. like this is a Nashville player, isn't it? Like and it's funny. Like, I've talked to people you know, throughout the league or at, or at the club. And they were kind of like, yeah, like he's somebody that we'd probably be interested in. Um, and it, you know, they were kind of belittling it a, a, a touch to me in, in the sense that he was their top target in free agency. Oh, yeah. He was, they looked at what they had, what they needed. Um, the, again, the extra allocation money that was coming in the Johnston trade and, and the um, international slots, uh, the idea that you're going to need a successor for Dax McCarty and Anibal Godoy slash another option in a long season for, you know, Dax, who's, who's, 34 turning 35, I believe, and, and Anibal Godoy, who's going to be spending a lot of time with the national team. And, and again, he's getting up there. He's had some injury concerns, but the ideas like I was looking at before this interview, the, you know, I have depth charts for every team. It feels weird to not have Sean Davis written as a starter, <laughs> but like you can't necessarily put him ahead of Godoy or McCarthy, McCarthy at this point. Like mm-hmm. that's a, that's pretty wild. Like this dude played every single minute for the Red Bulls last year. He's, fits stylistically perfectly he fits culturally perfectly like i still don't understand why the red bulls didn't just wrap up a new deal for him last year or i guess explored the possibility of trading him if, if it became clear that he wanted to test free agency like i don't know why this is a player that you don't take with two arms and try to hang on to i thought this about walker zimmerman i thought this about mm-hmm. mark anthony k you just kind of go down the line with some of these you know proven mls players like Davis isn't a best 11 defender of the year type player like uh, Zimmerman or best 11 type talent like Mark Anthony K is or all-star maybe, but like, this is a really, really good MLS player. And he's somebody mm-hmm. who's going to fit perfectly with this team. Like I, I'm, he wasn't cheap, obviously they, they had to pay him for his, for his <laughs> yeah. value. But like, I don't know. I, I like this maybe not quite in, in the terms of talent as like the Albert Rusnak signing with Seattle in free agency, mm-hmm. but like not far off. Like this yeah. is a huge move that I don't think enough people are talking about. In that regard, um, this was not a question I was planning to ask, but is there something in the fact that it seems like Nashville and Mike Jacobs kind of value the the known MLS quantity a little bit more than most franchises? Yeah, I mean, and it's pretty clear with like, and, and it's worked out like 
either the proven commodity like Anibal Godoy, like people uh, talked about that being a bit of an overpay when they got him and haven't heard much about that since <laughs> after he made 10 appearances for the team. And it was, you know, maybe, maybe if he wasn't worth 600,000, you, you can, you know, Dax McCarty was undervalued. So you, you play the middle there. Like yeah. they've, they found Dave Romney, which he, he wasn't an unknown commodity, but the galaxy clearly didn't think he was as good as he is. And Nashville kind of took a role on him and, and thought that he'd fit better with them and give him more time. Daniel Lovitz was a proven MLS commodity and he's kind of been what he was his whole career. Like these are things that this team continues to do. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily being overlooked by all other teams. Like there are like, you know, Montreal have done really good in the trade market recently. Uh, Colorado has, you know, for the past few years, like everything is, you know, it, it, if you can find a market inefficiency, be it, trading for players when the prices were lower than they are now. Um, that's, that's super useful in the salary cap league and, and teams are going to start to do more and more of that. So they're going to have to keep finding, you know, the new edge, the next edge as, as teams, again, like Montreal is a good example. They were almost exclusively international acquisition and even, you know, went with a, um, a non MLS experienced GM who he realized, okay, like this is a really good method of acquisition. Let's not overlook this. And then they kind of built a bit of their core around that way. So more and more teams are going to do it. And the prices are going to go up. Like you look at Paul Ariola, Kellen Acosta, all these guys. Like if Walker Zimmerman got traded right now, he'd be $2.5 million. Like, so yeah, yeah. they got him for whatever it was, one and, and incentives and an international spot. So again, he wasn't cheap, but like just the way that the market has reacted over the last year and year and a half in, in terms of trades, like they got in before it kind of exploded. Yeah. Now you mentioned this player and you, you just mentioned this team. Uh, the one outgoing player that's of note for most Nashville SC fans is the trade of Alistair Johnston to CF Montreal. Um, is Did this surprise you? Like it surprised all of us. And, and do you think that uh, about a million dollars in allocation money plus a sell-on fee, we'll get into the sell-on fee, I think specifically in a sec, because I think that's a little bit more interesting. Do you think that's good business? And, and what do you, what do you see overall in that deal? Yeah. I mean, the only reason that it wasn't, I mean, it was obviously a surprise. I'm not going to sit here and do, you know, uh, Captain Hindsight being, oh, yeah, I saw that coming. But, like, I knew that there were contract talks, and I knew that there have been contract talks for dating back to last summer. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they weren't particularly close on a contract extension. So I was, you know, surprised that that a deal happened. But, you know, again, in hindsight, it makes sense. If if both parties decide, hey, like, they're probably, we're probably not going to come to an agreement. And unlike with, you know, uh, Sean Davis with the Red Bulls or Albert Rusnak with RSL, like, they identified that and said, okay, rather than risking losing him for free, see what the market is. Um, and Montreal were obviously very interested. I think 1 million, when the trade happened, I was pretty blown away at how much it was. But again, mm -hmm. in hindsight with, you know, the Calan Acosta trade, with uh, the Paul Ariola trade and, and a couple other things, 1 million is, is still a really good deal for Nashville, but it's not, it, it was a big surprise when I saw the number originally, but as the off season has gone on, it, it's made more and more sense. Um, the sell-on is definitely interesting. Mm -hmm. Um he has a Scottish passport, a UK passport, yep, I believe. Yep, Irish. And I do, Irish. Um, I do know that there were teams in Scotland that were interested in him. Um, the 10% sell-on, it won't be nothing, but he's not going to be somebody who sold for $5 million down the right. line. He's somebody, you know, Richie Larea was a million bucks. Like, that's kind of the market that you'd expect for him. But again, that's still, they will get another chunk. It's nothing that they can convert to Morgan. But still, they'll get compensated if he does move on out of MLS. And they put the sell-on fee at a point where it does it won't disincentivize Montreal from transferring mm -hmm. him if they get the right offer. Whereas, um, you know, Kellen Acosta, Dallas tagged a 50% sell-on to Colorado. 
And then Colorado got a two and a half million offer from um, Reading and while the, that clause is still active. And they're like, we are only going to get half of this fee. Why would we do this? So yeah. like, there, there's an interesting sub conversation to be had about what the correct sell on is as far as maximum value while not deterring the club from selling, because what's the point, you know? Yeah, I think a big part of what we've seen with sell-on fees, especially lately, we've seen Atlanta try and tack on a couple to get their guys moved. For the most part, internally within MLS, you don't see them quite as frequently. I don't think. I think you see more straight up. It's um, going to be more and more. Yeah, okay. I, I think that this is a new. This is a new thing that that's more. That's going to be more aligned with the global market. Okay, so so I guess right now the 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 way that it has been done is, is incentives in terms of performance incentives, mm-hmm. and, and and it's potentially going to be sell-on fees more common. Kind of for the same yeah, purpose. I, I think yeah, it'll it'll be part of the conversation. Well, like or like there will be more de- like there will be deals. Like Lewis Morgan was yeah. one point two million gam with no sell on. If there was a sell on, maybe he would have sold for a million. You know what yeah. I mean? Just okay. As far as percentages go. Well, the downstream effect of this deal is that it, it looks like Nashville has a right back sized hole um, yes. right in their in their lineup. Um, I think most Nashville SC fans probably hope that it's not Eric Miller filling that role. Unfortunately for Eric, who I think is um, gets just a little more grief than he deserves. But do you think Nashville is, is going to fill their right back shaped hole? Obviously it's, it looks like Deandre Yedlin to Miami is, is all but done. So that, that option is off the table. Do you think a high profile option is, is a potential for Nashville SC or do you think they'll, they'll possibly even wait until the summer window? What do you see in terms of how they might fill that hole? I could definitely see them waiting to the summer. And, you know, it reminds me of, of last year or, you know, even going back to their expansion year, everybody kind of assumed that they would need a center forward. And then Yonder Cadiz was signed in the summer last year. It was kind of a similar thing that they might need another forward. And Ake Loba came in the summer rather than the winter. They, they prioritize flexibility. So it should not be a surprise. Plus they, they, they believe in, you know, internally in some of the players, like um, Alex Muell is going to get a shot to prove that he's a right, a right wing guy. Like I really think that he's absolutely perfect for that role. Like I was surprised when last year, when the shift, when Gary Smith made a shift to the three, four, one, two, or two, one, however you want to describe it, that he didn't get more of a shot playing right wing back because I, I thought that um, Alistair Johnson is, is kind of better fit the right side at center back in a back three rather yeah. than a wing back in a back three. Um, and Wheel was kind of getting his minutes more at like center mid. And, mm-hmm. and that kind of surprised. I thought that they were going to try and wheel at, at wing back last year. So he's going to get a full preseason of probably reps there. I don't know if he'll exclusively be playing there this preseason, but he's going to get. Pretty much first crack at, at prove to us that we don't need to sign somebody. Um, that being said, um, Mike Jacobs used the phrase uh, war chest of, of assets yeah. or allocation money on, on a couple press conferences recently. Um, and, and if you look at this team, that's probably where the, you know, the whole the air quote, a hole that they could address if, if there is one, you know, if wheel doesn't work out, they absolutely need to, you know, get a solution at right wing back. But I think that Muil is going to have a chance unless the right deal comes up. Jeff Carlisle of ESPN reported that Nashville were interested in, in uh, Shaq Moore, mm-hmm. the U.S. Uh, right back from Tenerife. Um, that would make sense, I guess. But but again, I, I'd, if I had a guess right now, I, I'd probably say that Muil is going to get the first crack of it and see how things go. Again, like the, the primary transfer window won't close until the early May. There hasn't been an official announcement, but in normal years, that's that's when yeah. the window closes. So they'll have you know, a month and a half, a month and a half into the season, they could sign somebody. They don't even need to wait to the summer. So I'd expect to, to, you know, nothing imminent. Well, if, if, and when the news breaks, it will certainly be broken by one Tom Bogert. Tom, <laughs> thank so. you so much for joining us uh, and for all your insight on Nashville SC's roster build this off season. Awesome. Thank you so much. 
That was Tom Bogert, uh, transfer expert, roster management expert, of course, mm-hmm. writes for uh, Major League Soccer there. MLSsoccer.com, of course, is the website. You can follow his work there. He's fantastic um, and just clearly knows the game inside and out. Um, Tim, I thought a couple of different things that stood out to me. Um, what, what was Before I ask you some questions about the conversation, what was your big takeaway from, from talking with, him, with, with Tom about the job Mike Jacobs has done this offseason? When we talk about Mike Jacobs, usually Wes and I, but also you and I, we're, we're always pretty positive about, I think, the way that this has gone in terms of building their roster. And when you look at the, the results on the field the first two years, you can kind of see why. But when you grab an outsider's opinion and, and the outsider's basically agrees with, with all of the positives. Um, it, it definitely kind of gives a little perspective that we don't have from um, the, kind of the same base of knowledge that he has following every team in Major League Soccer. So I think kind of um, from a selfish perspective, confirming that I'm right about something <laughs> is always is always good. But, but from, from kind of having that kind of confirmation that what f- we feel is the case kind of is the case from, from a more neutral perspective. Um, obviously, uh, he and I talked about it before we started recording, but um, you know it hasn't been perfect. Miguel Nazarit has proven to be a very bad signing. He was he was waived by Nashville SC just over a week ago. Um, you know you have guys that that Jacob signed David Akam, um, Abu Danladi, who he was hoping would be able to overcome injuries to be contributors, and they didn't work out for him. But every general manager has misses, and I don't think many general managers around the league have the hits that Mike does, and that's something that I think Tom kind of put pretty clearly in terms of how he's been able to manage the roster over the first you know two and a half years or so and what it means in terms of philosophy and what it means going forward for the long run too I think that's what I took away was sort of through all of the discussions whether it was you know low risk acquisitions right uh, with mm-hmm. Bunbury and Zubac of course Davis not as much low risk but fairly low risk when you consider how well he fits into this team you look at sort of the the, the risk reward and the cost there then you look at sort of how he's manipulating, and I don't. That sounds like a bad word, but it's not. Just mm-hmm. using the system for your own benefit when it comes when it comes to basically expanding his own salary cap by by acquiring more general acquisition money, and then sort of the being ahead of the curve on these trends about how to go out and acquire and swap slots and where to use money and allocate this, and like he just seems to be ahead of the curve on all of this, and. Every single time he talks, even the, the Alistair Johnson trade, which, we, like you said, we all have a, a pretty fond spot in our heart for, for the player here. We do, un, we, you know, you kind of have to understand the, the motivation behind making the move, which is we don't know if we can get a deal done. And we've got this huge fee that we're going to acquire. And, you know, like it, it was the time was right to try to make yeah. that move. It seems like every single one of these things that you talked about with him was just sort of, yeah, Jacob's kind of understands the system better than everybody else is sort of what it's was, it was the theme I took away. One of the things that Wes and I talked about when the Alistair trade was made was that this is a guy who's in line for a big increase in salary with his next contract. And to hear something that I honestly did not know, did not even have wind of from Tom that they've been trying to work on a salary or a contract extension since last summer. And, and they just hadn't gotten close when you have that situation and then you manage to get assets for the guy, despite the fact that he probably wasn't going to play for you either way, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good opportunity to say, okay, I'll take that million dollars from you, you know, and I'll take that 10% sell-on fee because, um, you know, you were either going to have to pay Alistair a lot more than I think maybe Nashville felt he was worth, or you were going to have to, you know, kind of 
have an unhappy player and deal with a guy who's maybe holding out on a contract or something like that. It's a little bit more difficult to do in, in MLS than it is in the NBA or the NFL, but to deal that guy and say, Hey, you can go back to your home country. You can go play in a system that is the same system played by your national team in a year where your national team is getting ready to play in a world cup. And at this stage, I think what we saw on Sunday is Canada will be playing in the world cup for sure. So I think, you know, it, it's so hard to, to call any transaction a win-win because somebody ends up being better. You know, a million dollars is a million dollars and Alistair Johnson is Alistair Johnson, no matter who he plays for. But it does seem like everybody found the right fit, whether that's Montreal, whether that's Nashville SC or whether that's Johnston. And I think Tom really kind of helped put that in perspective that it was the best for all three parties in that instance too. And having him walk potentially when you could have gotten something for him, that's that's the key here. Um, which is what he, which is what Tom mentioned about Sean Davis. Frankly, mm-hmm. why didn't they mm-hmm. trade? Why why didn't they try trading him to Nashville SC last year when they could have got something for him? So yeah, I mean, uh, it was it was it was interesting that he he drew those as exactly parallel. Basically, was this is the Sean Davis situation? Nashville won. This is the Alistair Johnson situation. Nashville made sure it wasn't going to end up losing in the end right. of that situation. So it was a, it was a really good parallel there. I'm not going to go with win win. I'll go with win not lose. <laughs> so it's win draw. So it's a Gary Smith. <laughs> yeah, Gary Smith because, special. Because because there is, as we talked about last week on the show, and this kind of transition transitions us into. They'll play Charlotte on February 8th. They will play FC Cincinnati on February 15th and the Philadelphia Union on February 18th. Uh, of course, the Union, got to make sure we get this onto every episode, but the Union will, will, of course, open the largest soccer-specific stadium on the continent May 1st. The Union will be the one that is a part of that match uh, here in Nashville. Those are the three preseason games, and a big part of what they're trying to accomplish in those games will be trying to figure out who plays and fills the hole left by Alistair Johnston. And I thought very interesting because we mentioned – this particular player on the pod last week as a potential who could be this year, CJ Sapong. And as a long shot, I threw out Alex Mawil to you. And I was surprised to hear Tom say, I, he thinks Alex Mawil could be the first guy who gets the first crack at that spot. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, I watched Gary Smith in the USL days and, and the way he uses those, those guys up and down the field, you know, that does sort of fit with Alex Mawil's skill set. I just did not expect him to say that name at that position. Yeah, I mean, they've tried to play Alex there a little bit, but it has been in, in situations where they're trying to kill a game for the most part, kind of saying, hey, let's put a, let's put a defensive midfielder out wide and this guy's going to play a defensive game. Playing him at a wingback role for an entire game definitely takes advantage of his motor and his energy and his ability to get up and down the touchline. We'll see if it provides the, the type of balance going forward and defending. We know Alex Muil can defend, but can it provide the type of balance going forward and kind of a, assisting an attack that includes Hani Mukhtar and TJ Sapong and, and probably uh, Ake Loba at times and Randall Leal at other times and, and some, you know, some combination of those guys. Does Alex Muil fit into that and kind of service that group of attacking players? I think that's the big question mark because, you know, playing centrally, He's going to be able to kind of shuttle the ball to them, but playing on the wing, there's a different responsibility when it comes to dribbling. There's a different responsibility when it comes to getting crosses in from the end line. And I think that he has some of those abilities, but they haven't necessarily needed to be on display for Nashville. And so if he can show them, if, if, you know, Nashville even sticks to the back five, back three formation, maybe we go back to seeing a bit more of a back four formation as we saw for most of last year until that kind of, uh, you know, two thirds of the way through the season switch. We'll see exactly what happens, but I do think that the right backs 
answer is not here yet because Alistair Johnson <laughs> is gone. And I think as much as I, I always put respect on Eric Miller's name and you guys heard me do it in the interview with Tom too, but I, I think you want a better player than that. If you are trading Alistair Johnson and saying, let's upgrade, you yep. need a surefire upgrade for that to be the case. Well, you, you, uh, you just raised a bunch of very fair and, and solid questions about Mouille's skill set and ability. Don't those same questions, if not more so, about pushing the ball forward and be being able to feed the ball in? Like, isn't like, that's not Eric Miller? Yeah, it's it's not. But Eric Miller is also a guy who's been playing the position his entire life. Alex Muil has been a winger. That's He's true. been a central midfielder. There's this. It's a guy with a different with a different um, geography on the field, even of, of where he even goes to, to kind of have to port him into that, even if his skill set fits it, which it does to a certain degree, but even if his skill set fits it, the, the angles are different, you know, all those sorts of things that he would have to adapt to. And he's a smart guy and he's a, a reasonably young guy. He's just only 26. So there's still plenty of upside with his game in this league, but it's definitely something that you're, are you fitting a square peg into a round hole or, or is it malleable enough that you can make it fit the hole properly? You know, that's it's these questions that I think Gary Smith believes he has the answer to, and we'll see if he does. We talked a little bit last week about the striker rotation, certainly the right back position. Are those are two focuses of Gary Smith going into the preseason. Is there anything else you want to add to that as far as what you're looking to gain out of these preseason matches over the course of the next few weeks? I think one of the things that I'm most intrigued in seeing is, is actually how good Charlotte FC is because as much as we've talked about, you know, we spent most of this episode talking about the way Mike Jacobs built a team. Charlotte didn't do it that way. <laughs> and th this is going to be a team that, that Nashville faces during the regular season. So we'll have to see if there's something to the way that they built pretty much from entirely outside of major league soccer with guys who had never coached or been general managers in major league soccer, it's kind of the opposite sort of approach from what Nashville has done. Uh, historically that opposite approach has not gone very well for other teams. We saw Cincinnati struggle with it. We've seen some other teams in recent years struggle with it, like Minnesota United, but it, it can work if you use your money smart, if smartly, uh, intelligently, you if you, yes, Yes, very smartly. Come on, writer here. guy. Yeah, it can, but it, again, it can work if, if you do it right. But um, I, I don't think there's a lot of confidence around the league that Charlotte is doing it right. And so if this, if this looks like a Charlotte team that is competent in a preseason match, I think there's reason to believe that they'll be coming around by the time the regular season comes. I don't really expect to see that, honestly. And I guess we should probably update people on last week, the Friday, like the mystery scrimmage didn't actually yeah. happen, right, on yeah. Friday. So we, we have not actually technically begun the preseason in theory. Right, yeah. It's, it's been just practices. They had an intra-squad scrimmage, closed door. You know, essentially, that sounds a lot to me like a normal training session. Uh, you probably have that in every training session. It might have been a little bit more serious in terms of tone, but it was just a, it was just a training session for the most part. And, and theoretically, they have another uh, unscheduled opponent uh, February 12th. We don't know who it is. And we'll see if like the previous opponent, they end up being uh, a, a late scratch because the opponent doesn't have their stuff together to, to actually be able to play a, a preseason friendly. We'll see how that goes. But I do think that um, Na Nashville used the most of their canceled game last week, and they would probably do the same if that ends up happening on February 12th as well. Well, it's a, it's a fun time to be a soccer fan in Middle Tennessee as, as Nashville SC sort of ramps up to, to the start of what uh, we can only hope will be decades of a, a spectacular stadium. Uh, I know I've got my season tickets. Uh, can't wait. My daughter's excited. 
friends and family are excited. I think everybody's pretty fired up about about what that building's going to look like. And and um, I think I got a text message from a buddy of mine going back to people, you know, talking to me about the, the soccer in general. My friends just asking me questions. Tim, one of them sent me the the tweet I believe that Nashville SC posted where it was just a photo of all the the seats. Mm-hmm. And my, my buddy was like, I never have seen seats so beautiful. And I was, like, <laughs> I was like, it's a nice photo. It's a very artistic photograph yeah. and the seats do look great, but let's not go crazy. It's it's uh, what the seats mean more than what the, <laughs> what the seats actually look like. Right. We're all building a foundation as, as a community. <laughs> um, no, it's, listen, it's exciting stuff, man. I mean, I know they're going to play like whatever it is, nine matches away from home to start. And, and mm-hmm. that of course is February 27th um, in Seattle. So that's right around the corner, but May 1st is going to get here sooner than we think. And after that, there's a lot of fun Saturday nights uh, down there, down there at the fairgrounds. It's going to be a ton of fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think probably everybody who is is heading to their podcast app to listen to us is looking forward to it. I, yep. And, you know, it's it's easy to to sit here and just like have a big smile on my face and glow about it. I just imagine how much bigger that smile is going to be when we're actually there watching the team play in that stadium in my in that 65 foot concourse cannot wait (laughs) cannot wait for that uh tim anything else you'd like to impart any wisdom any nuggets you'd like to drop on the wonderful folks out there listening to the club and country podcast i don't think so off the top of my head if i if i come up with something you will see it on twitter at club country usa or you will see it on the internet at clubcountryusa.com there you have it. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Send all your positive vibes and your positive messages and, and juju towards uh, West Bowling. Of course, he should be back next week. Uh, hopefully, uh, unless he gets Timothy Wayette at the border, we'll see. So um, <laughs> special thanks to, to, to him. And, and we're thinking about him and obviously to you as well. And for you guys letting me hang out with you. I, I really appreciate it. I love talking soccer. I don't get to do it very often. So uh, I relish the opportunities, even if uh, my wins above replacement is not sufficient i understand um you can get to the rest of the company at 440 sports the the youtube page all the other great shows across the network as well uh for tim sullivan my name is breaking all thank you guys all for listening this has been club and country right here on the 440 sports network